Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking about attitudes to race and injustice among young people in the United States and the UK. What difference has a Biden victory made to them? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. We've got two conversations for you today. In a little bit, I'm going to be talking to Michael and Jeevan from the Politics Jam podcast, which wrestles with questions of representation and participation. But first, a conversation I recorded yesterday with Kathy Cohen from the University of Chicago. She runs the Gen Forward Project, which has been surveying the attitudes of young people for the past four years to a whole range of questions, including questions of race and injustice. And I'm going to be talking to her about what she's learned and what she thinks Biden means for young people in the United States. Kathy, maybe we could start by just explaining a bit about Gen Forward, not least the cohort that you have been regularly surveying and asking questions about their political outlooks, their hopes, their fears. It's 18 to 36 year olds. So how would you characterize that age group? Because it kind of cuts across millennials and what I want to call Gen Z and you'd call Gen Z. Yes, yeah. I would call them Gen Zers, but I like the idea of calling them Gen Z. You know, for for us, our approach was that we wanted to ensure that we could amplify the voices, the policy preferences, the politics, in particular of young people, meaning young adults, but especially young folks of color from BIPOC communities. And so for us, we started out with the traditional kind of 18 to 30 back in 2016, but again, with a focus on having enough folks of color in our sample that we could disaggregate and say something about how young African-Americans thought about issues compared to young Latinx, compared to Asian and Pacific Islander, compared to whites, right? But as we continue to do the work, continue to have more surveys, we wanted to follow the millennials that were first introduced into our sample. And so we grew our age range to 36 now. And so you're right, we have mostly millennials, but we also have Gen Zers in our, in our sample. But we have decided less on a framework around generations. So we don't do the millennials compared to baby boomers. We do it sometimes, but not often, in part because that type of framework often flattens the real kind of what we think are interesting differences within generations, right? We are seeing more racial and ethnic diversity in generations than we've ever seen before. And so to not pay attention to the differences as well as the similarities within generation to us felt like it was a mistake. And that's why we use largely the framework of race and ethnicity to look at our data instead of the framework of generation. We'll make available to people so they can see there's some really fascinating findings here, particularly around the election that we've just had. And let's try and disaggregate some of it. So just to start with, you know, people won't be surprised if you if you speak generally across this age cohort that there's a very strong preference when people are asked to pick between Biden and Trump for Biden. But then when you look at the breakdown, there are big differences that emerge. So I, I was struck by the fact that young white men, that mm-hmm. is within this cohort, mm-hmm. it was kind of 50-50, um, oh, Trump-Biden. Yeah. Um, And so there's a big gender difference there, particularly among young white voters. But then there's also a big difference across ethnicities in that in that respect. That's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that I'll remind people and they often forget is that in 2012, a plurality and maybe a majority of young whites voted for Romney. And I believe a plurality of young whites voted for Trump in in 2016. And so this is what I mean. If, if we only look at generation, 
we would say, oh, young people turned out for Biden. And in fact, as you just noted, based on gender and based on race, we see real differences. And so if you take something based on even just the exit polls, we know that about 51% of young whites voted for Biden compared to 87% of young blacks, 83% of Asian American young people, and 73% of Latinx young people. Often when we think of young people being democratic, young people being progressive, and young people having a kind of analysis that looks beyond the two parties, that's often being driven by young people of color. In this case, before the election, there was concern, I think people would say, articulated about whether young Black men, for example, young Latinx men would be voting for Trump at much higher rates than expected. We even saw a phenomenon, rappers for Trump, um, who articulated this whole idea about, you know, they wanted lower taxes, so they were going to support Trump, which was ridiculous, of course. But in, in the end, what we expected is that the kind of most dedicated, most driven voting block for Biden, again, if we're looking at young people or young Black women, but that in general, people of color turned out for Biden at much higher rates than young whites did, even though a majority of young whites turned out for Biden. So we want to always be paying attention to those differences. And another really interesting finding in in your survey. So one of the questions you ask people, it's a sort of enthusiasm question. Are you voting for your candidate because you like your candidate or are you voting for your candidate because you really don't like the other guy? And the the numbers are smaller. There was a sort of enthusiasm for Trump among Trump supporters. Among people who voted for Biden, it was really it's really striking in your findings that among young African Americans, there is considerable enthusiasm for Biden. But with the other groups, it's very much the anti-Trump vote, which suggests that Biden potentially has a problem there. I mean, people have not voted for him enthusiastically. They voted against Trump. And that, at least for you know the next four years, is potentially something that he's got to address. I think that is just one of the many markers that suggest that people were motivated to come out and vote against Trump, right? As someone who lives in the United States, you understand why the madness of Trump would lead people to the polls. And sometimes, in fact, kind of holding their noses saying, I don't, you know, I don't dislike Biden, but I'm not enthusiastic for Biden. And that's what we see among many young people. And we've, you know, many people have talked about it as a kind of negative enthusiasm. Traditionally in political science, we're looking to see whose base is most enthusiastic. But in this case, it wasn't enthusiasm for Biden, but in fact, enthusiasm against Trump. But to the second part of, of what you were highlighting here is that if people are already skeptical about Biden, then the question becomes, can he ever deliver in a way that will satisfy young voters or progressive voters. And I think I think people made a decision. I know many young activists talking to them, they made a decision that they were going to vote against Trump and organize against Biden, right? That the conditions and the political context of organizing would be better for them under a Biden administration than a Trump administration. And so they understood what they were getting and they understood that the the only way that they could deliver on the issues that matter most to them is not just a vote for Biden, but in fact, organizing against that administration. You also asked people a whole series of questions, not about candidates, not about platforms, but about forms of politics. So one of the questions that you ask is, and and again, you disaggregate it, asking people what forms of politics they think are most likely to progress a a gender of racial justice. And particularly among young African-Americans, revolution comes top, I think I'm right in saying, and then you know, organizing activism. Voting is not on the list. I mean, on, I mean, we only get the top three in your findings. So conventional democratic politics is actually not primarily the means for progressing this agenda. And yet it's also true that young African-Americans were most enthusiastic for Biden. So there's, there's at least a question for me there, which one do you think dominates? Well, you know, I think we have to say we have to hold both, right? Um, yeah. And I, okay, I'm, not, yeah. I, I'm not sure it's contradictory, but I, let's try to unpack it a bit. I, you know, we've asked this question about what is the best method or best way to make racial progress in the United States. And we give folks a list of maybe 13 options that includes 
voting in state and local elections, voting in national elections, nonviolent organizing. And I think as we were kind of putting the list together, the group decided we should add revolution. And I think from for some folks, it was like, well, why are we adding that? No one's going to pick revolution. We thought it's important to, to have it on there as an option. <laughs> and the first time we we fielded that survey, in fact, revolution was number two among African-Americans. And I think many people kind of wrote it off whenever I reported, people would kind of chuckle. Isn't that nice that they would say they don't know what revolution is? They have no idea. And then when we fielded that question again more recently, revolution becomes the number one answer chosen, right? Basically, one out of every five African-American young people are saying the best way to make racial progress is revolution. Now, they may not know of every revolution, but I think what they're pointing to is that the, the need for kind of structural change to really advance race in the United States, right? They understand and they live daily the idea that kind of individual efforts, people of goodwill, this framework of diversity and tolerance really does nothing to change the structural conditions under which they live. And what they're asking for is more systemic change and thus the choice of revolution. Now, the other piece is that even among groups that picked voting, they picked voting in, in terms of their top three. They picked voting at the local and state level. No group, meaning not African-Americans, Latinx, whites or Asian Pacific Islanders picked voting at the national level. So if you believe that voting at the national level in the presidential election is the ultimate form of kind of democratic practice, then what these young people are saying is they reject that, right? That the forms of accountability that they feel most secure in are forms of accountability that center around organizing, protests, and maybe elections at the local level. And I think they're redefining, right, what their democratic practice is going to be. So that also raises questions about what Biden might or might not be able to deliver. And I want to come on to that a bit more in a second. You also ask people to rank which issues are most important for them. Um, yes. Racism is important across a number of groups. But so, so, and this would only be true this year, so is the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, that's so I was struck, as a few people were, I think, watching on election night, the CNN exit poll, where you know, there were these people sitting around the table on CNN, kind of taken aback by the fact that the pandemic wasn't a bigger priority for voters. They had assumed it was going to be. But it looks like among younger voters, and, and especially given that, after all, the health effects are skewed very much towards older voters, but it's a really big issue. Were you surprised by that? There are kind of two pieces out of that question where we ask what's the most important issue. The first thing I always point to is the number one issue for African-Americans is racism. And people will say, well, yes, given the uprisings in the, in the summer and the fall, they're not surprised at that. And I always respond that when we first fielded the survey back in 2016, and we've done about 24 of these now, I'd say 90% of the time, African-American young people said racism was the number one issue, right? So prior to the uprisings this summer, they were saying to us, if you want to improve my life, there are certain small policies you can engage in, but there's a bigger structural issue that I live with, and it is racism. And I, I would suspect that most politicians and many pollsters don't ask the question and didn't pay attention to that issue. So it's not a new phenomenon. It is con a consistent phenomenon. Now, the, I think the coronavirus pandemic shows up as number one for Asian Americans, Latinx, and young whites, and number two for African Americans because of its dominance in the news cycle, its disproportionate impact on communities of color in the United States, right? When we think about this generation, I often say it has been marked by a kind of economic restructuring. They had to deal with the recession in 2008, and now they're dealing with the pandemic's recession again. So these are not young people who can say, oh, that is only impacting my grandparents, right? They see it in their communities. They've lost their jobs. They're dealing with unemployment. And so I'm not surprised, I guess, that COVID-19 and the pandemic shows up, but I don't think it shows up only as a health issue. I think it shows up as yet another ordeal that in particular young people of this generation, but young people of color have to deal with in terms of the burdens on their communities. 
And something that wasn't there, and you, I've looked at some of your other surveys where you go all the way down the list, and so you can see the full range, and it and it scores pretty low. So I'm used to thinking of, of survey data that shows that there's a big, and I'm going to put this in generational terms, there's a big <laughs> generational difference in attitudes to climate change. So, mm. and, and when you think about the some of the radicalism within the Democratic Party at the sort of Green New Deal end, it does revolve around an assumption that climate change is a, is a big issue for young people. But not in this survey. It doesn't show up. In some ways, it doesn't surprise me, given the year that we've had. But in other respects, given the way that the Democratic Party in its left-leaning guise is moving, it did surprise me a bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think in this case, we did a survey where we asked about climate change issues. And those were very important to young people when posed to them, right? How important is it? It doesn't come to, I think, the top of the list. And I think, again, because our sample is structured so that we want to make sure that we see and hear the voices of young people, I think when they think about all the issues that are confronting their communities, including issues that seem to be right at hand, unemployment, right, food insecurity, police brutality, all of those issues. Climate change is an important issue. It's just not at the front of the list. The second thing I'll say is when we talk about it as a kind of environmental justice or racial justice issue, then I think there is kind of more acknowledgement and people can see the ways in which that might be impacting their communities, right? The dumping of chemicals in their communities, things of that sort. So I think it has to do with the framing So I wouldn't dismiss it as an important issue clearly to these generations, but I think, you know, there are other more pressing issues that young people of color in particular are pointing to as things that they have to deal with first. So on some of the the questions where you ask people to respond particularly to things that have been very prominent over the past year, so defund or abolish police departments. That's a, I mean, I'm assuming that's a new question. You weren't asking that two years ago. We were not asking. We were not asking. Okay, I'm just checking. I want to get that right. (laughs) Yes, Um, you're right. So we got a new, you know, we got a new data set here. It's quite high, isn't it? It's not Mm. a uniform issue. So relative to another question, which is free college tuition, where pretty much all young people are in favor of it, unsurprisingly, I guess. So this one is potentially quite a divisive issue among the young because it, you know, African-American, I'm looking at the chart now, 38 Asian-American, 44, Latinx, 26. These are people in favor of defund. Uh, Yeah, not abolish. So abolish is lower, but defund white, 32. This is possibly a divider within this generation. I think so. First of all, I appreciate you reading the the data from that perspective. Usually when people look at those numbers, they go, oh, see, young people don't want to defund the police also. And I often say, well, I think... What well, they're what suggesting. What a lot of them do. <laughs> exactly. Like, well, well, you know, a third, a third do, or Asian Americans closer to almost one half. And so I would say it is an open space, I think. Because if you pair that question with, do you think the police are necessary for safe communities? You also see high numbers of young people saying, yeah, maybe they are necessary for communities. And then we have another question where we say, hey, would you support a new agency of first responders? that would deal with issues like with mental health issues. And overwhelmingly young people say yes to that question. I always suggest that what we're seeing is a process of evolution in terms of thinking, right? That this idea of defund the police, which has been a part of abolitionist discussions and activism, has been part of the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter for a while, that is really now entering the kind of public domain It's going to take some time for people to come to understand what it means, what it doesn't mean, how to think about it, right? We have to deal with some public and political education. What I would suggest is that what we're seeing is the possibility that young people can be one to that position, right? That many of them are open to this idea that the police don't function and don't work in their communities in the ways that they would like less seem willing to say we should abolish the police, but more seem willing to think about a change in funding and a change in structure. And so I think it's something that we're going to watch over time to see if young people increasingly come to understand defunding the police as a position that they want to uphold and to to agree with. Let me say one last thing, which is I think on another series of questions we asked, for example, 
is police brutality an isolated incident or part of a kind of systemic pattern? And we show some data over time. And what we've seen is that slowly but surely, more and more young people have come to understand police brutality as part of a kind of systemic pattern. Now, that has always been the case for African-Americans. They've always said overwhelmingly, yes, this is about you know systemic abuse. But it really has been over time that many young people, in particular white young people, have come to that position. And I think we might see a similar pattern with defund the police. Now, some of that will be conditional on is there really a space to have that discussion? After the election, we have really seen the Democratic Party kind of bear down on this position of, oh, defund the police is the reason we lost seats in the House. And I think we're going to find out that's not really true, but it's going to take some time to kind of unveil that and really rigorously engage that, that argument and then have activists and others on the left really push back on that and offer an alternative explanation for why you, you lost um, seats in the House. Yeah. Yeah, I think that argument has a long way to go. So th- some of the questions that are at the end of the survey that I was looking at mm. reminded me of something that I'd almost forgotten about. I'd sort of forgotten about Bernie for a while. Um, but <laughs> I think we all remember that he had huge support among young people. Absolutely. Um, and on what I think of as a slightly more Bernie questions, things like universal basic income, free tuition, and so on, there is overwhelming support among yeah. young people. And that is not a Biden agenda. That is a Bernie agenda. Absolutely. And in a way, I think, you know, we may have slightly forgotten that. I mean, this is one of the things that both speaks to the expectations or not that young people might have of a Biden presidency, but also what Biden may be confronting. That kind of, it, let's call it a sort of radicalism, there is a big consensus among the generation that you survey that there needs to be real change there. That's right. And, I mean, and I, Biden's not going to give them that, is he? Well, I don't think. He's, he's not calling me, so I don't know. I suspect he is not going to. Um, I mean, I'm looking at his cabinet. It doesn't look oh like the cabinet God. that's going to yeah. deliver that to don't me. Don't get me started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's going for a demographic representation, which we know doesn't take you very far at all. But I, I guess With I want to Janet go back. Yellen and John Kerry oh, and others. God, don't get me. No, this is great. So one, I keep telling people that this is when we think about kind of the places of solidarity across race and ethnicity. I really think that it's about the idea of an expansive state. When we ask questions about, you know, can the free market take care of the most important issues confronting the country? Overwhelmingly, people say no to that question. Young people say no to that question. They believe, in fact, that there has to be an active and expansive state. They want UBI, right? They believe the state should be providing $1,000 a month for each American that's 18 and older. They support, as you said, free tuition at public universities and colleges. They also believe the government should guarantee everyone who wants to work a job, right? So they're asking for a different understanding of the work of the state. And you're absolutely right. That is not the Biden agenda. The Biden agenda is incrementalism, bipartisanship, right? A kind of tweaking at the edges. It's, you know, let's make the Affordable Care Act better, not let's make sure that, well, he's increasingly saying yes to a public option, but not a kind of traditional single payer in the way that that Bernie was articulating. So I think you're right. There is going to be real tension. Now, the question to me is not really about Biden, but will there be the infrastructure to mobilize young people into the streets to demand that the Biden-Harris administration do something more and do something better? It will be the kind of pressure on that administration that I think moves us more towards the agenda that these young people are articulating instead of the kind of incremental neoliberal agenda that we would expect from a Biden-Harris administration. So I just want to finish by asking you a couple of questions, taking on board everything you said at the beginning about this is not a generational survey. This is precisely about disaggregating. But there are, you know, there are aspects to this age cohort, and this is not just true in the United States. It's true in Britain. It's true in Europe. So one of the characteristics of this age cohort is that they are the most highly educated people in history, particularly if you think of higher education, college. The majority of them have some experience of college. At the same time, in economic terms, they are probably the most precariously placed. You know, there is an increasing mismatch between the promise of higher education and what it delivers. And they are, of course, enormously indebted. So there is a big 
looming question, not just in American politics, coming in British politics too, about student debt. And you know, there are both radical and incremental proposals around that. Do you think it, that tension between the promise of higher education and what it's delivering explains some, much of the radicalism of this generation across these different ethnicities? I think that's part of it, right? I mean, I often say that if we understand this generation, I point back to the idea of precarity and vulnerability. This is a generation that's experienced these two recessions. This is a generation that has experienced endless wars. This is a generation that has seen the restructuring of the economy such that, in fact, what has come to be expected for them is, a, is gig work and the gig economy, not the kind of traditional careers of their parents, possibly. Deindustrialization. We could go through the list of, of the many issues that make this generation one defined by precarity. I would argue both social and racial precarity. I think for young whites, experiencing the first African-American president has put into question, right, the role of kind of white identity and white power in the country. So I think, yes, I think the student loan issue could be an issue that produces solidarity across race and ethnic groups. We see mobilization around student debt in the United States and across the world from South Africa to to England. So I, I do think that can be an important vehicle by which we mobilize young people. But I also think the kind of question of structural racism, white supremacy has been an important motivator to move people into the streets to demand something different. But I want to go back to, I think it is the feeling of being vulnerable, the feeling of being precarious that has consistently been experienced in communities of color, but increasingly, I think, is now being understood and experienced in white communities that is going to mobilize people. Now, the question I think we all have is, does it mobilize you towards the left agenda that we just articulated, or does it mobilize you towards a more kind of right-wing populism where, in fact, the explanation for your precarity is driven by demonizing some group of others so that you don't pay attention to kind of corporate greed, or maybe you do pay, you know, maybe they highlight some corporate greed. This is what Trump did without ever dealing with it truthfully. So I think you're right to say they're precarious. I think you're right to say, in fact, it is going to kind of raise their consciousness. And then the question is, who will be mobilized and articulate an analysis and a vision that will move these young people in a political direction. And I don't think we can assume that precarity leads to left politics. I think it leads to a question about what what should I do? And then it's the question of who will win the day. One last question then. On our podcast a few weeks ago, we talked about, and again, I apologize, it's a kind of generational framing, but (laughs) that young people's relative loss of faith, to put it in those terms, in democratic politics, and it's seen around the world, and it tracks all sorts of things that are common across different different electorates. How much do you think is at stake for that question over the next four years? So so there is relief for many people that Biden won. There is a fairly low, I think, expectation bar for many people, but still there are some expectations. And we've talked about some of the gap that still might exist between those expectations and what this next four years might deliver. Do you think there is quite a lot at stake given that earlier question about revolution and other options for young people's confidence in what I think an older generation thinks of as democratic politics. I think we should also bear in mind there are lots of different ways of doing democracy and voting in national elections, as you've said, is not by any means the only one. But do you think there is a lot at stake over the next four years for that question? Well, I, I do believe there's a lot at stake. I would argue it's less about the holding up of democracy because, in fact, I think the types of uprisings that we saw this summer, the ways in which people mobilize in terms of social movements often creates the most kind of democratic practice and promise outside of the electoral arena. What has been really interesting is to see organizations based in social movements, right, based uh, in in a vision of liberation that is about mobilization, thinking about how do you also pursue a kind of radical electoral politics and strategy. So all that to say, yes, I think there's a lot at stake. But I, I want to be careful. So I, I was listening to that podcast. Guys were great. I guess I would question a couple of things. One <laughs> okay, is, there's a bot coming. There, of course, there's fine. always a bot, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, well, 
one point is is that um, yes, I agree that there is deep alienation among young people with you know traditional democratic institutions. I would say that there's always been deep alienation and skepticism, in particular in communities of color, and in particular for African American communities. Right. So it goes back to this question of disaggregation and different groups' relationship to the kind of promise of democracy. For African-American young people, they would say, yeah, there's a lot at stake, but there's always been a lot at stake. And we've often been failed by this kind of idea of democracy. And so we have to take it into our own hands and go outside of the electoral arena if we are to win anything for our communities. So I, you know, I, is something at stake? Absolutely. Is it important that so many people, so many young people and so many people turned out to say no to Trump? But the question is, what will Biden deliver? And then what does it mean for, of course, 2024 and the movement politics that will take place between now and then? And it would be great to talk to you about that over the next four years. That, yes. would, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You can find a lot more details about Jen Forward, and there's some really fascinating data there, and it's also beautifully presented. We'll put that in our show notes, as always, and tweet it at tppodcast underscore. Having had that conversation, it was really good to talk to two people we've been hoping to get on for a while now, Michael Bancole and Jeevan Sander, who are the hosts of the excellent Politics Jam podcast. And they wrestle with many of these same questions about representation and race. And I'm talking to them now about how it looks from a UK perspective. So Jeevan, Michael, given what we were just talking to Cathy about, about that American perspective of the generation 18 to 36. How do you think the UK generation of that age compares? So we don't really at all have a kind of defund the police movement, but Black Lives Matter has had a big impact here. I think it's probably true that the UK generation is as keen on cancelling student debt as the American generation. Do you think the generation in the UK is, is as radical as that? I would say that people in the UK or young people in the UK are less radical, but also definitely deeply unhappy. And that's because both in the UK and the US, we see that young people haven't been represented well by the political system and their economic interests aren't also really being catered to. So in both countries, we have these first past the post systems, right? And we also have young people having to move to major cities in order to find good jobs. And what does that mean? Well, that means that young people's votes are wasted in we know there's a huge age divide in the uk young people vote labor older people vote conservative what we might be less aware of is that the 10 safest seats in the country nine of them are labor and they're all in major labor cities six are in london and three in liverpool and on the economic side of it we also know that millennials they are earning less than those 20 years older than them and the same thing is also true in the United States as well. I suppose the thing in the United Kingdom is that the costs of both a lack of political representation and our economic shortfall aren't nearly as drastic. Our lack of political representation doesn't mean that, for example, there are people who are committing mass shootings within schools. And on the economic side, we have a, a stronger safety net. That's my kind of take on it. Mike, what do you reckon, buddy? So I would argue that, yes, there is a level of radicalism in that young people do want to see particular issues addressed. I think systemic racism is an issue that young people want to see addressed. Whether they want to defund the police or whether they want abolition of the police remains questionable. I don't think that's particularly popular in the UK. Certainly there is a a desire to address the way policing is taking place in the UK in that there's racial profiling. We see that black people tend to be more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. But I don't think there's a desire for complete abolition of the police. Certainly maybe it redirects enough you know, it's enough of police funds. To Cathy's point, 
that we tend to, we're definitely guilty of this on Talking Politics, that we talk about generational politics all the time, you know, young versus old, young vote Labour, old vote Conservative, young people voted Remain, older people voted Leave and so on. And her point, particularly in an American context, but it's probably true here, is that that neglects the real diversity, both of opinion and identity among younger people, that particularly maybe the 18 to 36 generation is much more diverse than talking about generational politics allows. Do you think that's just as true in the UK as in the US? I think this is true. So minorities in the UK, broadly speaking, tend to vote for the Labour Party. And this is particularly true of young minority voters. The first point I tried to make here is that I think it's important to not treat minorities as a monolith. But young black minorities, for example, tend to vote disproportionately for the Labour Party. And this will sort of shift as you kind of change with different minority groups. There's this really important need to focus on the diversity amongst different ethnic groups in the UK, factoring in the different wants of these groups. So I know that, you know, maybe for young white voters, there's less of this push to the Labour Party. Yes, they disproportionately vote for the Labour Party as well. But there is this, you know, ethnic difference needs to be taken into account. And one thing I would add to that is that I suppose you could see generational differences as it's kind of like a useful heuristic but it's also not absolute. So I like to think of like the Labour Party here as being one of poor graduates and the Conservatives one of being rich plumbers. But if you have a, a rich graduate, they're also quite likely to vote Conservative. And poor In the United- <laughs> or, or plumbers as well, right? You'll see those people vote Conservative. I mean, look, more than 20% of under 30 still vote Conservatives, right? There are Conservatives out there. And the same thing is true of the US. I mean, look, the Republican coalition is like white identity, white evangelicals and the business community. But young people tend to be less of those things. They're, you know, less racist, more pro-choice and tend to be poorer. But where young people are, white identity, evangelicals or business community people, they're also more likely to be Trump voters. You know, if you have a 24-year-old Wall Street banker or a 25-year-old from Tennessee who has a Confederate flag sticking out of his pickup truck, who do we think that 24-year-old is going to vote for? Yeah, he's going to vote for Trump. But, you know, the marker, I think, is still quite useful as at least a, a summation. And do you think, we were talking to Kathy Cohen about this, that this is how I put it to her, that the generation that she studies is both the, by far the most highly educated in history, particularly when you think about higher education, just attendance, university, and also in many ways far more precariously placed than certainly my generation or older generations, and that the payoffs for that education are looking more and more distant while the debt remains. And so there is a question about how much of particularly the economic radicalism there might be among 18 to 36-year-olds is driven by that, the, the gap between the promise of higher education and what it's actually delivering. And that certainly seems to be true in the US, where actually student debt is an even bigger issue. I mean, it's a, it's a huge kind of thing hanging over the country, not least if that bubble bursts, the American economy bursts. Do you think it's, it's similar here? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, look, in the long run, we've had this kind of the economic trends have been a bifurcation in the labour market or a split, right? We have these these lovely jobs that are high pay, high skilled jobs that are in cities that some graduates will get. And then we have lots of like lousy jobs with like low pay and not many good pay or good employment prospects or good progression prospects, rather. And what we've seen in the UK is that with millennials, for example, they kind of were more likely to go into professional jobs, about 12% more likely to go into professional jobs, but then 35% more likely to go into these elementary lousy jobs as well. They also have some short run bad luck in that they came of age during the Great Recession and then now during COVID-19 as well, when they should have seen incomes rising. And then the other thing I would say is that in one sense, the prosperity of older generations, and particularly in the UK, depends upon younger generations doing worse. You know, about 46%, I think, of housing equity in the UK is held by over 65s. So when millennials are spending a quarter of their incomes on housing, well, they're paying that to an older generation who own those houses. And that older generation blocks the changes that we need to make happen in order to, to kind of see millennials do better in London, for example, to relax planning restrictions. I mean, David, I know you're in Cambridge, right? It's hard to build in Cambridge. We can't build around the Green Belt. We can't build upwards either, as well as pensions, which, you know, not just um, the state pension, which in the UK is very well protected, but also defined benefit pensions. The older generation voted themselves a really good pension package, then said to young people, can you please pay it through your wages or wage sacrifice rather? 
Michael, I know you work on questions of minority representation in, in the House of Commons in Parliament. And when you look at the political class in, in the House of Commons, it's unrepresentative in many ways. So it's both unrepresentative of minorities relative to the population. It's also profoundly unrepresentative just of the 18 to 36 generation. I mean, most MPs are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. There are probably a few in their 80s. I can't remember now. But it's, you know, it's massively skewed old and it's massively skewed white. How much does that matter? So it does matter. And the idea that the more minorities we have in Parliament, the more young people, the more women we have in Parliament, the more likely their views are to be represented. But I think what's more important is the substance, right, and the actual representation of their interests. So I think young people generally feel quite overlooked by the political process in the UK, and they feel alienated by the political climate, which has been defined by hostilities towards marginalised groups in society, like immigrants. Something that I thought about during the summer with Marcus Rashford's advocacy is that the takeaway point for, for me was that representation really does matter. You know, Marcus Rashford was a young man who, you know, grew up on free school meals, and he was able to use this experience as a young man on free school meals to force government U-turn on, on this issue. So this is support for the normative argument that people's experience and their characteristics can lead to representation of interest. And what we do find in research is that left-wing parties, which tend to place an emphasis on egalitarianism and social justice, whereas conservative parties that, that focus on individualism tend to do a better job of representing the interest of minorities. So we see this in, in the UK where you know, all policies aimed at tackling racial discrimination have been passed by Labour governments. There has been a commitment in recent years by the Conservative Party to do a better job of tackling racial discrimination. So, for example, under David Cameron, the party actively promoted minority candidates, but it's hard to discern or to point out any policies that back up his commitments to tackling racial discrimination. If Theresa May had a similar record on race and racism, so she commissioned race disparity audit, but she did not act on any of the findings from this report. And Boris Johnson, like his predecessors, has stressed the importance of tackling racism. He's commissioned yet another review on racial inequality, while sitting on the recommendations of, of several other reviews. I guess the final point here would be that the Conservatives have typically adopted a colourblind approach to racism, and this approach to racism overlooks the role it plays in shaping the lives of ethnic minorities. So it's a commonly held view that, with the colourblind approach, that you can combat racism by individuals pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, but this fails to, to really recognise and grapple with the institutional barriers. Um, and these institutional barriers cannot be brought down by individual determination. So I totally take your point about the substantive representation. But as Jeevan said, you know, United States and Britain, one of the things they have in common is a kind of first-past-the-post politics, which does produce a certain kind of dynamic. It also seems to create a certain kind of openings for certain kinds of politicians and the representation of constituents skews heavily towards the kind of constituency you come from. So I think I've told this story on Talking Politics before, but I was really struck after the last election. You know, there was a group of young, on the whole, conservative MPs who were elected people in their 20s, and I met one of them and said it was so great that there are you know people in their 20s in the House of Commons. And she said, yeah, but I represent a seat in the North. And effectively, she was saying I was elected by people in their 60s and 70s. That, that's my constituents. I'm not here to represent people my age. I'm here to represent my constituents. And they're not young. And in many of those northern seats, they're not, because as Jeevan said, the young have moved to the cities. So do you think at some level, this also requires electoral reform? And if so, what would you do? I mean, how would you reform it? Potentially. So what we do see, actually, and research again would highlight this, is that MPs represent diverse constituencies and these tend to be Labour MPs. So the Conservatives, minority MPs, tend to represent white seats, right? These are seats where white people make up the majority of the population. And in these ethnically diverse seats, these MPs are representing the issues of minorities. Regardless of their race, they tend to represent the issues. I guess in terms of reform, the first part of our system, as Jeevan acknowledged earlier, does not really incentivise engagement with electoral politics, certainly among young people and minorities who tend to be in these ethnically diverse constituencies and these constituencies tend to vote Labour anyway. I've always been a proponent of proportional representation. I think this, this leads to the representation of minorities' interests and this has been shown again in the literature because what we do see again is that these systems tend to lead to MPs focusing on their constituents. And I've actually interviewed MPs as, as part of my, my PhD and one of the things they all say to me is that, yes, I have this intrinsic desire to represent minorities, but I have to remember that 
I'm a member of my party, but I'm also uh, representing my constituents and I cannot forget them. And I think for the Conservatives, it's difficult for them to, I guess because they represent these white seats, I think it might be more difficult for them to represent the interests of, of minorities, coupled with the ideology of conservatism, I think, the, the focus on individualism, certainly, and the colourblind approach to racism, that makes it more difficult. Jeevan, if you could reform something, what would you what would you do? I think I would probably do, as Michael said, go to proportional representation or at least electoral forms to ensure that young people's votes actually count as well as those of ethnic minorities. The idea of like the Lords being 80% PR and being a kind of a Senate of the regions has always seemed quite a good idea to me. I think that would be the kind of front and centre of it because that political reform, I don't think you have the economic reform either. And I suppose on the other side, I don't know if it's so much of a reform, but also encouraging young people to vote. You know, one of the reasons why old people get a lot more benefits isn't necessarily because they're a larger group. You know, if you have a larger group, if you give them an extra pound each, it also costs you more money to buy their votes as a group. Whereas young people tend to have much lower turnout rates. And so there are things we can do in order to ensure young people are represented. Automatic registration, habitual voting to ensure they're voting at school for the first time, as well as civics education about how Parliament actually works, how the political system works. It's always really surprising to me. So I teach on the side as a, in the Brilliant Club, young children who are looking to go to university from less advantaged schools. And it's always surprising to me how children who are 18 or 16 or 17 have no idea how the political system actually works, how they can be citizens. And so we should kind of cultivate that ideal. So I want to just ask you finally, given you have a politics podcast, we have a politics podcast, we were talking to Cathy Cohen about the already I sense the disappointment of a Biden presidency. And she also we used that phrase, vote against Trump, organise against Biden. You know, the, the opposition is getting ready already to give Biden a hard time. How are you feeling about moving from the, the Trump era to the Biden era? I mean, we're not there. So we're looking at it as outsiders, as observers. Are you getting ready to... Um, start complaining about Biden? I'm less optimistic about a Biden presidency than Jeevan is. I think Jeevan's a lot more optimistic than I am. So I think Biden represents a return to normalcy, right? So it's a return to multilateralism. So Biden will look to rebuild America's ties to its democratic countries across the world and its relationship with multilateral organisations following Trump's isolationist approach. There would also be a sort of similar competitive relationship with China. There'll be a difference in style, but not in, in substance um, on that front. The fundamental problem I have with Biden and his campaign was the idea that a vote for him was a return to normalcy. And normalcy for many African-Americans was police brutality, was racial profiling, was poverty, was systemic oppression. And Biden has campaigned on a promise of a more unified America, a more united America. I mean, unity has been promised in the past in America. The reconstruction in, in America was brought to an end under the guise of healing and unity. So I'm sceptical about the, you know, the claims of unity. Um, but I'm infused by the idea that we need to heal the divisions that exist in America, but often this has happened on the backs of, of black Americans or, you know, black Americans have been excluded from this call of unity. And this election cannot be understood for me as a repudiation of Trumpism because over 70 million people have voted for a president who has you know, incited racial violence, who has demonstrated a disregard for democracy and institutional norms. And I think in order for there to be genuine healing and unity, there needs to be recognition of how we got here. And Biden has framed Trump as an aberration. But Trump was not an aberration. He was merely a brazen manifestation of some of America's worst tendencies, you know, racism and white supremacy, for example. And racial injustice was a really, really important issue going into this election. So we saw anti-racist protests in all 50 states following the murder and, and the death of George Floyd. And these protests were multi-generational and multi-ethnic. And Biden takes over an America that's both culturally and economically divided. And I think he has a real fight in his hands in terms of enacting the transformative policies that are required. And again, his, his hands might be tied in that what happens in January in the Georgia runoffs will be very, very important because the Republicans obviously control Senate at the moment. But his hands might be tied in terms of how transformative he might be, but he certainly needs to be transformative. And his, his record on racial justice inspires no hope in my, in my view. So... He played a key role in shaping the 1994 crime bill, which led to mass incarceration of black Americans. And in the 1970s, he worked with, with segregation lists to, to oppose mandated busing, which was a desegregationist policy designed to racially integrate schools in America. And this was, in fact, something that Kamala Harris called him out on during the Democratic primaries last year. Black voters 
have, in the face of voter suppression tactics that hark back to the Jim Crow era, have endorsed Joe Biden. They have supported Joe Biden. And he, he mentioned in his, in his victory speech that he's going to repay their faith. He's going to have their back. And he needs to be held to his promise. Stephen, give us the... Give us the, the positive take. Yeah, Mike, what are Michael, you hoping for? <laughs> Michael's right. I am a I am a perennial optimist. I do have I have hope for Biden. Maybe it's best to like I kind of split it up into the material and the moral. So on the on the material side, Biden certainly had the most radical platform of any Democratic president, I think probably since FDR, right? A two trillion dollar climate change plan, expanding healthcare, higher taxes on the rich, quadrupling spending on low income housing, you name it, Biden wanted to do it. Now, as Michael said, it does depend on the Senate. And also just getting those 50 Senate seats might not be enough when you consider that Joe Machen, a Democratic senator, also represents West Virginia, a very Republican state. So like, we'll see what Biden can do. But in the material terms, look, I have faith he's going to do at least some of what's needed to be done. And on climate change in particular, there's a lot of executive action you can do to ensure that the planet doesn't burn in 50 years. I would also say moderate candidates can achieve quite extreme goals. I always think one of the kind of the political genius of Tony Blair was to dress up what is quite a radical idea, abolish child poverty in a generation in this moderate middle class sensibility, whilst also subtly raising taxes on the rich. A million children did come out of poverty during Blair's era. Jeremy Corbyn presented himself as a radical, but couldn't get elected and also ran on a platform that wouldn't reduce poverty. And so maybe in order to ex- to achieve extreme goals, you have to also say, by the way, I'm actually moderate and sensible and in line with your values. And in the moral terms, I suppose I would say that a return to the Obama legacy of, of unity, compassion and hope is in and of itself a valuable ideal. It would also be frankly quite nice to not see, I have to think about the president of the United States or what they've tweeted on any particular morning. And the final thing is in this time of COVID, Biden offers consolation in the face of unspeakable grief. And the idea that he could provide comfort and support to the 250,000 families in counting who have gone through, you know, the worst thing imaginable, at least provide some hope and context for the future. And also look, the battle lines are drawn for future political battles. Maybe people only vote when they realise they have something to lose, right? Maybe the young people in this country after 2016 realised, hold on a second, there was some stuff about the status quo we quite liked. And in this election, also young people saw, as well as people of colour in the United States, actually we have something to fight for. You know, we have to fight for a better nation. So let's go out and do it. If you want to listen to Politics Jam, you can find it, as they say, where you find your podcasts. Last week's episode was with Gary Young. And next week... They and we are probably not together going to be talking about Brexit. In the meantime, international shipping dates are getting tighter. If you want to order some Talking Politics merchandise, please just go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, and you will find out where and how you can get it. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. check the leg walls uh, i had i had yogurt with with granola and honey because i'm getting much older now and I've... <laughs> what did you have when you were young you know Vodka. like <laughs> also like i just recall there being a lot more carbs and bacon in my life than there is now yeah. <laughs> <laughs>